Well, good morning, church. Great to see you this morning. If, uh, if you don't have any kids, sorry that you had to sit through that whole video, but I think it's really important. I wanted all of us, especially you sitting at home, to watch and let you know that uh, next Sunday we are having kids programs again. I'm so, so, so excited to have our kids learning about Jesus. Uh, I've seen kids come into this auditorium since we've opened up. That's been awesome. Um, but we're excited to have a, a special service for your kids, kindergarten through fifth graders, as the first phase. And we're excited to, if this phase goes well, continue forward and uh, start opening up all of our kids' programs. We're really, really excited. We love our families here at WFA, so hope to see you next Sunday. Well, it's been a crazy week for Taryn and I as we moved into our first home together. We found a house here in Wenatchee. Thank you. It was, uh, it was just one of those things. We thought we were going to be in an apartment for longer, and the, the Lord came through, and we were able to be blessed with a beautiful home, so we were moving this last week. And I just want to take a moment, even before we get into our message, just to say uh, thank you to all of those that did help us with our move and those that offered. And I turned you down because we had too many people that were offering to, to help us move. Um, so uh, if I turned you down, sorry, but I thank you for the support anyways. Um, even though um, I made a mistake, and on Tuesday I was supposed to have some guys come over and help me move, and um, I, for some reason, um, wasn't thinking. I actually uh, scheduled myself to donate blood that day, and um, so I, I was donating blood Tuesday uh, early in the morning, and they said, hey, just want to let you know you shouldn't be lifting anything the rest of the day, and I thought, oh no, I got these guys coming over to help me move. I'm not going to be able to move anything. So I showed up, and I was like, okay, I hope I can feel good. But sure enough, I was just kind of feeling kind of woozy with heavy stuff. And so I told the guys, I said, hey, I'm not being a wimp. I just, uh, I lost quite a bit of blood today. And so I, I, uh, I would appreciate it if you guys could move the heavy stuff. And they said, yeah, no problem, man. Like, it's all good. And um, they gave me a little bit of flack for it, but that's okay. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you to our church family. You guys just went over uh, and, and above what we could expect in terms of support for us as we um, make Wenatchee even more our home than it already was. And uh, it's been wonderful. If you haven't experienced the church in that way, like a family that is here to support you, I want you to know that that's what the church is here for. It's, uh, it's a family of people that are, that are here to support you for your physical needs, your spiritual needs. And so if you're watching at home and, and maybe you've just watched this a couple times or you're here and you, know, you come into church on Sunday and you instantly leave and you don't connect, you're, you're missing a huge part of what the church is supposed to be. And it's, it's a family that supports one another. So um, just want to say thank you to WFA. You guys are an incredible family that we've been blessed with. So today we want to get into our, our story, our message today, and we're going to be talking about Exodus 32. And there's a lot of scripture for us to read today. So um, if you have a Bible with you, it's probably best to use that. We are going to have scripture on the screen. Um, but again, it's just a lot of scripture. So I hope that we don't get lost in it. If you do get lost in it, just hang in there. Um, we'll get through it together. We're going to be talking about Exodus chapter 32. We're going to be talking about how God is a God of mercy. And uh, it's funny because our story today, God does not seem in our story like a God of mercy. In our story today, God seems like a furious, angry God because he was very angry at the Israelites in our story. And he actually threatened to remove the Israelites and, and destroy the nation of Israel because of his anger towards them. But through that, God is still showing his mercy. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, about how at Mount Sinai, this, this event that had so much anger and, and punishment actually turned into a mountain of mercy for the Israelites and how God gives us mercy each and every single day. If you aren't uh, familiar with your Bible, the book of Exodus is about the freeing of the people of Israel. 
And what we see is that the Israelites had been slaves for about 400 years in Egypt, and so God uh, uses this man named Moses to free the Israelites. And so God uses Moses, they free the Israelites, the Israelites run uh, out of Egypt, and that's where we see the, the famous story, if you've heard of it, where God splits the Red Sea, and the Israelites are able to flee into freedom away from their slavery. So God had promised the Israelites a promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey, as it was supposed to be this great place for the Israelites to build the Israelite nation. And so the Israelites, now that they are freed from Egypt, they are not all of a sudden in the promised land. They find themselves in this desert, in this wilderness, and they have to continue to make their way to the promised land. But as we see, the Israelites quickly become people that beg, complain, and moan to God at any inconvenience. There's a moment in Exodus where the Israelites are hungry and they say, God, God, why would you lead us into the desert so that we would starve to death? That doesn't make any sense. We're, we're hungry. And so God says, okay, um, I'm going to give you manna, this, this bread that fell from heaven in the morning, and, and, and quail, and they were able to eat, and it was a miracle. And then later, the Israelites, they were thirsty. They said, God, why would you lead us into the desert just to thirst and die? Um, we would honestly rather be slaves in Egypt than, than to be here in this wilderness. And God said, okay. And, uh, and that's where we see um, a moment where Moses strikes his staff on a rock and water comes from the rock and, and the Israelites are able to, to drink. And, and so even though the Israelites, they, they beg and they complain, God meets their needs. He shows them, them, them mercy and helps them miraculously. And so what we see is the Israelites show up to the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai. And so we see that Mount Sinai is a place in the Sinai desert and when you think of mountain, when you ask me to think of mountain, I think of the beautiful Mount Rainier. I'm used to being on the west side where I wake up, I see Mount Rainier. If you're from the west side, you may know the term, the mountain is out today. Um, the idea that finally the rain has dissipated and you can see this beautiful mountain. Um, coming over here, though, I can't see Mount Rainier. And so Mount, the Mount Sinai is actually only 4,000 feet, which is similar to Badger Mountain here um, locally. And so um, it, it is a mountain. I mean, it's, it's big, but it's not... A huge mountain. Actually, when I went to Israel, it was interesting. Um, when you're kind of in this flat desert, they would say, oh, look at that mountain over there. And it was kind of just like a hill. Like I could, you know, quickly walk over it. And, but to them, that's a mountain, you know. And so they're in this desert area. They find this Mount Sinai. It's about 4,000 feet tall, which is no joke. I mean, that's a big mountain. That's real. Um, and so God wants to speak to the Israelites. He wants to kind of lay the laws of the land. You know, here's, here's how I want you to live as a nation of my people. And if you follow what I, what I lay out for you, then I'll bless you. You guys will be blessed. You'll be, um, you'll be living in abundance. It's going to be great. And so the Israelites agree to do everything the Lord says. Yeah, God, we're going to follow you. We're going to follow you and, and you'll bless us. It's going to be awesome. And so God decides to, to speak with the Israelites, and he comes down. There's a moment uh, in your Bible that talks about uh, God coming down and a cloud of, of smoke coming on top of Mount Sinai. And, and God is coming to speak with the Israelites, and there's thunder and lightning. It's this great event, and the Israelites are terrified. And they say, actually, uh, we're not going to talk with you, God. Um, that's way too scary. We're going we're gonna to choose Moses. Moses, you're going to be our, our, kinda, our representative with God. So you're going to go up the mountain, you're going to talk to God, and then you're going to let us know what he's saying because we don't really want to talk to him ourselves. So we see that Moses goes up the mountain, and for the next 11 chapters of Exodus, 
uh, God pretty much lays down the law of the way that he wants the Israelites to live. And a huge part of that, God warns against the dangers of idolatry. The idolatry being that there shouldn't be any other God that the Israelites follow other than God himself. That there should be only one God, no other gods. And, and God really wants Moses to get this. He, he mentions it several times. And the idea really is that the Israelites were coming after 400 years of being slaves in Egypt. And Egypt, if you know anything about Egyptian culture, it was a polytheistic society, meaning that they didn't believe in just one God. There were many gods. And even though the Israelites, they had always kind of believed in the, the one God, the, the God of, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they probably had some, some cultural influence there. And so God really knows that the Israelites are, are always kind of tempted to fall into idolatry. And so God really wants to point out the danger of, of idolatry. So Moses is speaking uh, with God on the, mount, on the mountain, and, uh, and so that's where we come to our story today. If you want to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32, we're going to be reading the story of the golden calf. Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16, we'll kind of unpack it, and then we'll continue to go through the chapter. Verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him, and he made it an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it is with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people." So what we see is that Moses, as he's speaking with God in the mountain, the people of Israel are, are creating an idol. As God is telling Moses, hey, there shouldn't be any other gods other than me, the Israelites, just because Moses has been gone a long time, they get bored and they decide to, to make an idol of their own. And so they actually commit idolatry while Moses is speaking with God. And we see that this obviously creates a great amount of anger with God. God is going to threaten to wipe them off the face of the earth, and Moses has a response. Um, I don't think I would have the guts to respond this way to God, but he says, hey God, turn from your anger. Turn from your anger. Why would you do that? Why would you bring your Israelites out into the wilderness just to kill them? The Egyptians are going to say, oh, what an evil God that is. 
And so Moses has the guts to say to God, hey, you shouldn't do that. You should turn from your anger and, uh, and not destroy your people. So then if we go to uh, verse 14, it says, Then the Lord relented and not, did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Then in verse 15, it says, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. And on they were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it's not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw that the calf and the dancing... Uh, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that the people had made, he burned it in the fire, then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Don't be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know these people are prone to evil. You know how evil they are, they said. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who has brought us, brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. They gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them go out of control and so became a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And the Levites rallied to him. So we see that, uh, that Aaron, Moses' brother, was, he was kind of supposed to be in charge while Moses was gone. And, and, and Aaron doesn't want any, any guilt. He says, look, I, these guys, you know how evil they are, Moses. They, they told me that they wanted an idol, and what was I going to do? You know, they gave me this gold, I threw it in the fire, out came this calf. I didn't have anything to do with it. We know that obviously wasn't true, but what we, what we see is that the Israelites are a people that were prone to idolatry. They were prone to having idols, and they know who God is. They were set free from, from Egypt by God. They, they experienced miracles in the desert, the manna and the quail and, and the water coming from the rock. They, they experienced the splitting of the Red Sea. They know who God was. They saw God come on Mount Sinai and they were, they were so, it was so real to them, they were terrified. They chose Moses to be a representative because they didn't want to speak to God. They knew who God was, but they still decided to turn away from him. So Moses is angry. He says, anybody that is for the Lord, come to me. Anybody that is willing to say that they screwed up and turned to the, back to the Lord, come to me. And it says that the, the Levites came to him. And there were about 3,000 people that didn't, that weren't willing to turn from their ways. And, and it says that there was a massacre of 3,000 people that night. Those people were not able to be in the nation of Israel because God knows if those people were still there, there would just always be that, that poison in their culture. Chapter 32, verse 30 says this. It says, The next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. Exodus chapter 33, verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. 
and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying that I will give you, uh, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you along the way. So we see that uh, God's still pretty angry. He's still pretty upset. Moses is, is angry as well. He, he can't believe that the Israelites made such a, a big mistake. And he says, maybe I can do something. Maybe I can make an atonement for your sins. If you're not familiar with the word atonement, the idea in the Old Testament, or, or anywhere in the Bible really, is that the wages of sin is always death. Anytime there is sin, there needs to be death. It, it, it's, it's, it's what makes things right. The wages of sin is always death. When Adam and Eve sinned, they lost their immortality. The, the wage of that sin was death. Now, in the Old Testament, we see atonement being a way to kind of get around that a little bit. And a lot of that atonement was done by animal sacrifice. And the blood of an animal, the death of an animal, the blood would kind of cover the sins of the people to make us right with God. But it was never like, it's not like you just slaughtered you know, one goat and then all of a sudden you were good for the rest of your life. You had to continually make this, this sacrifice to continually atone for your sins. And what we see that Moses is saying, this is a great sin. Maybe there's something I can do to atone for it, to kind of cover that so that the Lord doesn't destroy you like he really wants to. And so God says, you know what? Okay, I'm not going to destroy the people of Israel. He even says that you know, there's going to be a time when, when that judgment will come for what has happened, um, but, but continue to go towards the land that I promised you. Continue to go to the promised land. Um, I'm going to send an angel. You're, you're, I'm, going to, I'm going to make sure that you guys make it along the way. But you're a stiff-necked people. The Israelites are a stiff-necked people, and I'm not going to go with you along the way because I might just get ticked off again and, and end up killing you all. That's, a, that's pretty harsh. That's a, uh, that's a tough thing. I wouldn't want to be an Israelite in that situation and say, man, the God that created me and loved me, I screwed up so big, he doesn't really even want to be near me right now. Now we can go into the theology of the fact that God is everywhere, so he, he can't really be not with the Israelites and stuff, but we don't have time to really go into that today. But what we know is that the point is God's furious. God is frustrated. He's angry at the people and he calls them stiff-necked. I remember when I was in Israel, uh, I just fell in love with the Israelite people. They're great people, they're, they're, they're kind, um, but I'll tell you one thing, they're stiff-necked. They really are. Um, when, you, when, you, when you speak with an Israelite, they have their view, and if you disagree with it, you might as well just go back to the U.S. They, uh, they don't want you there. Um, they, they, they love Americans, most of them that I met. They love, they love the U.S., and, um, and so it's not like I encountered that very often. But you could tell that there was a stubbornness in their society. In fact, when you're going through the city of Jerusalem, the city is split into quarters. Um, you know, that way you can live in this area if you're Christian. You can live in this area if you're Muslim. Um, you can live in this area if you're Jewish. And uh, because they can't interact together. If, if you disagree with us, then just get out of town. I don't even want to see you. They're a stiff-necked people. And you might be looking and saying, how in the world can they be so stiff-necked that when God was doing all that he was doing for them at Mount, at the Mount Sinai, that they still would turn and make an idol for themselves? How are they so stiff-necked? But I'm here today to suggest that maybe the stiff-neckedness, the stiff-necked problem isn't an Israelite problem, but I think it's a human problem. I think we all can be stiff-necked. We can be stubborn. It's our way or the highway. 
Um, I think I'm probably uh, exhibit A of that. Um, I'm, I'm oftentimes finding myself, you know, I, I want it a certain way. It's got to be done my way, and I have to always be reminding myself, no, it doesn't always have to be exactly my way. I think we all have idols in our life. This stiff-neckedness, we, 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 we get stubborn, and there's areas in our life that we don't want to give up to God. Maybe you're not making a calf out of gold to worship, but I think you have things other than God that you worship. I think that there are things in our life that take up space that God wants in our hearts. Maybe it's politics, success, popularity, financial wealth. I think an idol that we probably all have is the idol to want to have all the answers and want to be in control. So many times, everybody just, we all want to have the answers to a situation. We want, all want to have control of the situation. We don't like being in uncertainty. The Israelites wanted answers. Where is Moses? He was gone so long. What, is he dead? Is he, you know, what, what is going on? They, they were uncertain. Even though they knew who God was and saw all the miracles that God performed for them, it was their uncertainty and their discomfort in that that turned them away from the Lord. They wanted to create an idol, something that they could see, feel, touch, they could have control over, they could have answers for. They knew how it was created. They knew how it would work. A great example of this, Taryn and I were watching a, uh, a Netflix documentary that, uh, if you know the actor Zac Efron, uh, he's put together a Netflix documentary in which he goes to other countries and kind of sees if there's you know, things about other cultures, things that we can take and, and improve upon uh, the American culture. And he was in uh, France, um, and, and I think the episode has something to do with, with uh, the clean water in France and, and, and things like that. But there was a, an example in the story that I really thought showed, man, us as humans, we really do just want to have all the answers and we want to have control. He was in the city of Lourdes, Lourdes, France, and there's a healing shrine in Lourdes. And it's one of the most visited healing shrines in the world. It is said that four to six million people come to visit the shrine every single year. Now, the story goes that in the year 1858, the Virgin Mary appeared to a 14-year-old girl named Bernadette, and the Virgin Mary supposedly told Bernadette that she needed to find this spring that was in the ground, and so she started digging, and the townspeople thought she was crazy. She just kept digging and digging and digging, and sure enough, she hit this spring. She was told that the, the, the water would have healing properties if you either drank it or bathed in it, and so it was eventually seen that, well, man, you know, this 14-year-old girl, I mean, there's no way that she would have known that there was a spring under there. It must have been some sort of miracle. And so uh, there was a shrine built there, and the Catholic Church, uh, you know, kind of protected that spot. And starting in 1883, since 1883, there's always been a full-time physician at the shrine because so many people experience some sort of healing that, that they have a physician there that they can express their healing to. Now, the doctor sees himself and examines about 100 people a year to really see if they were truly cured of their ailments. See, the Catholic Church said there's so many people that are being healed, we need to have like a process to make sure that they are truly being healed, right? That these are, these are actually legitimate. So they've created a very strict process with seven criteria in order to determine if something is an actual miracle of God. First of all, the person has to have a full diagnosis verified by doctors. So if you're going to come and be healed, you got to have something that, you know, a doctor said, yeah, you had cancer before going, or yeah, you were not able to use your legs before going. It has to be verified by doctors. Step two, the ailment must be severe, so it can't be a headache or flu. 
If God cures your headache, it's apparently not a miracle. It's just, uh, it just is what it is. Um, step three, the illness has to be unexpectedly gone. You can't have any other expectation as to why it would have gone away other than uh, experiencing that healing from that, from that shrine. Number four, the cure has to happen instantly. That means if you couldn't use your leg and you walked into the water and you end up limping your way out, still not a miracle. Number five, the person has to be completely cured, no more side effects. It's, it's, you, you have to be completely cured. You have to have a, a, a verified diagnosis come in and it has to be completely gone. Number six, the illness can't come back. Because of this, they don't even consider a case until the healing event is over a decade old. There has to be 10 years after you've been healed that they have to say, okay, yeah, this, this ailment never came back to you. And then number seven, there can't be any medical explanation found as to how that healing occurred. Because of this, uh, the physician that's there at the healing shrine, he has a team of hundreds of doctors that, that look at these people to see if there's any medical reason. And only then, if, if something, if an event has passed through all seven points, then a Catholic bishop will say that that was a miracle and a work of God. And over the past 135 years, there have been 7,400 claims submitted to the Lord's Medical Bureau, and only 70 of them have been verified miracles and the work of God by the Catholic Church. I'm not here to, to shoot arrows at, at the Catholic Church today, but I think it's a great example of, of humans trying to put God in a box, trying to create a process of, oh, that's great that, that maybe your life was better you know, before and after you touched this water or, or, this, or this healing shrine, but, but um, let's, let's pass it through our, our process to make sure it really was of God. You know, and to me, my, in my mind, uh, to be honest, um, and I don't mean to sound flippant, but I, I, don't, I don't think I really care if it, if it is proven to be of God or not. If someone walks in and they have an ailment and they're cured of it, even if it wasn't true, if they think it's true, then I'm, I'm happy for them. It, it's, it's great. I don't have to, to go through this seven-step process to make sure that it's truly God at work. Because I think, I think if we try to put God in a box, we try to have all the answers to something, we try to have control over something, we're missing out on a lot that God can do. See, this is an example of ways that we want to have all the answers, but to be honest with you today, God created us not to have all the answers. God created us not to be able to do anything without him. God created us to be dependent on him. And when we have moments of uncertainty, instead of pressing in and saying, God, that's why I need to rely on you, our human reaction is to be stiff-necked and say, well, I'm just going to kind of go away from God. I don't have the answers to that. I don't understand how God works. And so we end up finding material things in our life to fill a void that only God can fill. I said earlier that the wages of sin is always death. We have idols in our life, things that are hindering our relationship with God, and the wage of that sin, of that idolatry, is death. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 30, Moses woke up after the great sin that the Israelites had committed, and he said, maybe I can go make an atonement for the sins. Israelites, you screwed up big time, but maybe I can go make an atonement for that. See, in the Old Testament, as we talked about earlier, that, that atonement had to be done continually. But what we see in the Bible is that a man named Jesus came down to die on the cross to be the final atonement for our sins. Something that a, 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 a goat or, or an animal blood sacrifice couldn't do. Moses tried to make an atonement for the people 
And Jesus came and, like Moses, made an atonement for us, for his children. See, Jesus came to die, and, and since the wages of sin is, is always death, the thing with Jesus is that he had no sin. So there was no need for him to die. But he decided to take on the sins of the people, to take on your sins, my sins, and die on the cross, the death he shouldn't have experienced because there was no sin in him. And that blood covered our sins completely. Jesus does more than just atone for our sins. He doesn't just cover our sins. He wipes our sins clean. Are you thankful today that Jesus came and made an atonement for your sins so that when we screw up, when we have things in our life, idols in our life that are taking the place of God, that we don't have to die, that we are able to be restored in life and in a relationship with Jesus? When the Israelites made that golden calf, they said, thanks God for freeing us from Egypt. Thanks God for freeing us. Thanks God for feeding us. Thanks for giving us water. Thanks for giving us you know, this entire elaborate plan of laws and a way that we should live. Thank you for promising to bless us. Thanks God, but that's really not enough. We still need to have this thing that we have control over. We still need to have our idol. See, when we have idols in our life, material things in our life, we're saying, thanks, Jesus, for coming and atoning for my sins, dying on the cross, doing something nobody else could have done, but that's still not enough. I still need this. Thanks, God, for, for blessing me. Thanks for dying on the cross, but I still need to make sure I make six figures a year. Thanks, God, for doing everything, doing all this, but, but I still need to make sure that my friends like me. I still need to make sure that I'm popular with, with my group of friends. See, when we have material things that take that place that really Jesus wants in our life, we're saying, thanks, Jesus, for dying on the cross, but it really isn't quite enough for me. So I'm thankful today that Jesus, even when we say that, he loves us. Even when we don't give Jesus all of ourselves, he still loves us and he still wants to make, make right things that, that, that are wrong in our life. And so as I, as I welcome the worship team up, I just want us to take a moment and think, are there, are there areas in, our, in your life that God wants you to give up to him today? Are there things in your life, certainty, the, the feeling to have all the answers, that God just wants you to give up to him and say, you know what, I've got everything under control. I just want you to, to trust in me. Maybe you've really never made the decision to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior in your life. And this is the first time that you've said, you know what, yeah, Jesus came, he died on the cross for me so that I could have right relationships, so that the wage of my sin is not death, but it's eternal life. Think today. Are there areas in your life that God wants you to let go of? Are there things in your life that God just wants you to say, you know what, just give it up to me? I want us just to, to close our eyes in this room today. I'm even going to close my eyes. And it really is none of our business, it's just business between you and God. And if, if you can think of something specifically that God wants you to let go of today I just want you to raise your hand raise your hand or maybe you can you can say out loud what that thing is whatever it is that that helps you let that thing go I just I want you to walk out today letting go of, of the things 
that are in your life that, that you try to have control over, that you want all the answers to. And I just want you to walk out today understanding that God is in control, that God loves us, and he has a mountain of mercy for us even when we screw up. Again, maybe today is the first day that you've heard the good news of Jesus. You want to accept Jesus into your life and, and accept the, the gift of eternal life. Jesus came and died on the cross so that if we believe in him as our Lord and Savior, that when we pass away from this earth, we step foot into eternal life with God. If you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, raise your hand. Say, I accept. Say whatever it is to, to solidify that decision in your mind. And let us pray together. Jesus, we come before you today, God. We just want to give up the things that you are calling us to give up. God, if there are material things in our life that we are holding that you want us to let go of, Lord, tell us that. Lord, let us let those things go so that you can be in absolute control, Lord. Allow us to be so dependent on you, God. It's your will and your way, Lord, that we want in our lives. Not our will, not our way, God, but yours. God, we thank you so much, Lord, for everything that you've given us, God. I thank you for these people. I pray that as we go today, Lord, that we will be more blessed by you, God, and that our lives will be forever changed by your mountain of mercy that you have towards us, God. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.